One of the interesting things about watching movies and TV shows from before around 2010 is seeing artifacts from the ancient past that I actually once used. Things like landline phones and people buying CDs and VHS tapes and plot lines that involve people missing other people because they get stuck in traffic and they can't say anything about it. And I know, I know, people will be smirking at this and thinking, oh, you sweet summer child, I used typewriters and watched black and white televisions. But you take the point, right? Technology and capabilities evolve so much in such a short period of time they can be easy to take for granted. But we may now be getting a glimpse of the biggest disruptor of all. Today, we'll be discussing artificial intelligence, or AI, and how it's revolutionising the way we live our lives. Public-facing AI services like the DALI image generator and the OpenAI GPT-3 chatbot are developing at breakneck speed, amazing and scaring people in equal measure. Input a prompt into these programs and they can generate a dozen ambitious images that would take an artist weeks to create. They can write a news article or a poem or a choose-your-own-adventure book. And that's all great, right? Right? I'm Emile Donovan, and today on The Detail, the explosion of front-facing AI and the implications for art and work and life. Andrew Chen is a research fellow at Auckland University. He's also involved with the Matu Group, which invests in science and tech-based startups. I think it's always refreshing to talk to someone who is perhaps under the age of 20 these days, and they've never lived in a world where you needed a cable to connect to the internet. Yeah. Um, and you know, Wi-Fi is just the norm. It makes me think, well, you know, 60-year-olds talking to us, they're, they're, they're going, oh, well, you never knew a world that didn't have these technologies in place. Technology is always going to be changing. It's always going, you know, super fast. It's hard to predict. Moore's law says that computing power will double every 18 months or so. Mm-hmm. Once upon a time, that was literally, you know, a number of transistors that you could fit on a chip, but more broadly now it's, you know, computing power, um, and, and that's just going to mean that the technology is going to keep doubling. Are you familiar with the clip from BBC Newsnight from the late 90s where David Bowie is talking to Jeremy Paxman and they talk about the internet? I think it was about 1999. Do you know what I'm talking about there? I don't know that one. You just made me think of a clip where um, there is a man, a reporter, who is saying, is technology something that we should be afraid of? Uh. And then he jumps out holding a sign and shouts, technology, at this random woman (laughs) that's just walking down the street. So is it any wonder people are afraid of technology? Technology! And he's like, yes, proof that technology will be scary. <laughs> That's a great clip. The one, the one that I'm thinking of is, is Jeremy Paxman and David Bowie, and David Bowie just being his usual beautiful, thoughtful self. And they're talking about the internet, and Jeremy Paxman is kind of downplaying the potential of the internet. He's like, it's just a tool. It's just a tool, though, isn't it? No, it's not. No. No, it's an alien life form. What do you think, I mean, when you think then about the Is there life on Mars? <laughs> yes, it's just landed here. The actual context and the state of content is going to be so different to anything that we can really envisage at the moment. 
where the interplay between the user and the provider will be so insimpatico, it's going to, it's going to crush our ideas of what mediums are all about. I don't think we've even seen the tip of the iceberg. I think the potential of what the internet is going to do to society, both good and bad, is unimaginable. I mean, I'm curious as to whether you think that that idea, you know, it's an alien life form, we don't even comprehend the edges of its potential power for good and bad. Do you think that that applies to the development of artificial intelligence too? Yeah, this is a really interesting philosophical discussion about whether or not what we've created here is a different species. Yeah. Um, AI and computers actually talk in a different language to you and I. Um, we're here using our words, but the computers prefer to talk to each other in zeros and ones and numbers. Um, and a lot of the work that we're doing is trying to force the computers to speak our language, mm -hmm. right, just talk in ways that we can understand. But actually, their communication methods are probably more efficient than the ways that you and I communicate. And so, yeah, I think there is an interesting thought there about, you know, have we created a new species that actually it's – we shouldn't be thinking of it as a tool that humans have created to help us, but whether or not we've actually created something that w would preferably exist in a different form to the way that we have made it exist. What do you mean by that? What, what, what sort of form do you think it would preferably exist in? Yeah, so computers can talk to each other much faster. Um, they can communicate with each other much faster than the way that humans can. Um, they have access to a much larger repository of knowledge um, than you know any single human can have. They have very different constraints. While biology is very efficient in terms of energy, and you know the human brain is a, a wonderful piece of engineering almost, you know, computers potentially aren't constrained by the physical constraints of a head. Um, mm. They can be as big as they need to be. They can consume energy in different forms, so they don't need a biological body to be eating food to generate energy for them. We mm. can have electricity come in from different sources, and they might even be more efficient at converting energy from sunlight to the types of energy that computers need. And so when we talk about it in those ways, we start to say, okay, well, actually, you know, the inputs and outputs of these systems are so different to our biological ones. Yeah, maybe, maybe it's, not, it's not just a tool, it is a different type of being. It's interesting to hear you talk in, in that way and then to think of the manifestations of AI and how they sort of appear to the public anyway, the broader public the glimpses of the potential that we kind of see. And over the past couple of weeks, we've been introduced to this this thing, this AI chatbot. A new AI chatbot tool named ChatGPT is rising in popularity online as people share the surprising things it can create. The system, which is still in a prototype phase, is designed to simulate conversations between humans and AI. It is capable of generating human-like conversations, but experts say the accuracy and safety of the output has been questionable. Now, that introduction was written entirely by the chatbot tool itself after some prompts from our producers. I mean, do you know anything about, about this, how it works? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's different levels of complexity that we can get into here. Um, and uh, it's, it's a different form of AI than uh, what we might have seen sort of five years ago. Um, and obviously this is GPT-3, so there was a GPT-2 and 1, and they're working on GPT-4 hmm. already. But essentially it's read a lot of text, 
um, a lot of text that has been generated by humans over the years, uh, and it's figured out, given a prompt, uh, that it should respond with uh, certain types of text. I think what makes this particularly interesting that hasn't been seen in a lot of um, previous language models is the ability for it to um, transfer contexts. So it can take information or knowledge from one context and apply it to a completely different context, depending on the prompt that a user puts in. Write an editorial by Ben Thomas about New Zealand politics in 2022. As we approach the 2022 New Zealand general election, it is clear that the country is in a state of flux. The past decade has seen a number of changes in the political landscape with the emergence of new parties, the rise of populism and the increasing influence. Of um, and, and I guess the, the thing that all of these generative AI systems, whether that's GPT-3 or DALI-2 in terms of the images that have been generated over the last year. From a vintage photograph of flying cars in New York City to ancient hieroglyphics of an Egyptian animal god using a computer or a picture of a giraffe on a jet ski. For us humans, these are fun, far-fetched art that might take hours to make. But to Dolly 2, an artificial intelligence program, this is all child's play created in a matter of seconds. Whoa, that's kind of weird. I think what's been interesting or scary for humans is that once upon a time, computers, I think, I think we, we all accepted that computers would have greater knowledge than humans because computers can just store more facts. But we thought, okay, that, that, that the computers won't have intelligence, where intelligence is sort of applying that knowledge mm. or doing problem solving. And we're starting to see, okay, well, computers might actually be able to access the knowledge that has been given to them and start to shape that in, in ways that address prompts, so address questions that humans might be giving them. Mm. And then I think with DALI 2, what's interesting is that humans then said, okay, well, um, creativity is something that is only going to ever be in the domain of humans. So creativity being finding new ways of doing things or finding new ideas that previously have not been seen. And, and I think DALI 2 in particular with the generative images has, has really challenged that notion by being able to you know, take inspiration from past images and then generate images that just did not exist before, the famous one being a teddy bear riding a skateboard mm. in uh, New York. Like, that's just an image that nobody would have ever taken before, and somehow the AI has managed to take those three components and generate a very photorealistic image of it. Here's Tim Gibson. I am a professional art director and illustrator and occasional creative director for hire. Back in September, he wrote a piece for the spin-off looking at this program, DALI, that you heard Andrew talking about. This is the AI that generates images from prompts which are entered by users. I've had to play with it. It's a lot of fun. But Tim had a professional interest too. It's been on my radar for longer than it would for most people because it, it felt somewhat inevitable but this year the, the speed of it's really ramped up so I've kind of had to get my head in the game a little bit more and know their enemy. For, for people who aren't familiar with this can you kind of explain how AI generated art kind of works in a nutshell? So it seems to be I'm not super technically minded but the the general the general understanding that I have is that a couple of different companies sort of like trawled the internet and sucked up 
vast numbers of images that uh, people have been posting, and some of those are copyright-free classical stuff from, you know, museum sites and, and um, archives, and some of them are sort of 1950s golden age illustrators and artists who are probably also out of copyright, but also some quite mainstream kind of... Um, just any if you posted anything on the internet that you that you drew or painted, and they just put in a giant washing machine and uh, used various ways of figuring out what was in the image, and then they kind of reverse engineer. You can just ask for stuff now, and it sort of uses this data set or model, and it spits something back of various levels of quality, but each day it seems to get slicker. When the AI spits out something that is original, do you know, like, who created that art? Who's that art belong to? Does it belong to you if you put in the commands? Does it belong to the developer of the AI? Are these the questions that, 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 that we're sort of grappling with at the moment? I think, like, legally, I don't think it's been figured out. Um, mm. I think some of, the, some of the companies who are running it are cautious about what they're saying for obvious reasons. It, it's Technically, it's not like copying and pasting elements from existing artwork. It's just using them to learn, you know, the structure or the colour approach or the textures or the lighting or the whatever. And it's just, it, so it's almost impossible, I think, to reverse engineer something from a, from a, a, a copyright or a claim perspective. Mm. But there are some quite interesting things. So with living artists, you can literally request something to be done in the style of a well-known illustrator. Mm. And, and while it's technically not using pieces of their art and collaging them together, at the very least you might think that that was unethical and kind of undercuts, you know, that particular artist's or illustrator's, you know, investment in themselves and in in their craft uh, to the point where, yeah, you know, someone can just type it in and hit enter, as you say. Yeah, I mean, it does get into interesting territory, isn't it? You know, in the way of sort of originality and people taking inspiration from other people. I mean, you know, to an extent, Quentin Tarantino, while he is a very original director, is also an extraordinarily derivative director, taking inspiration from lots and lots of movies and lots and lots of people from throughout history. But I guess this is another this is another step, isn't it? It's not being interpreted by a human or executed by a human, and so it, it operates on, a, I don't know, a different sphere, do you think? Yeah, the execution thing is is a sticking point. Yeah. Um, so I think people who are, are using AI to create art or to create visual art um, <laughs> have got a little bit stuck on this idea of them being artists and then there's illustrators and artists who are sort of fighting with them about, you know, the usage of the term, mm. which is kind of a bit, a bit pointless. Um, <laughs> No, no. What tedious discussions about the true nature of art? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I think we've I think we've done that, and the conclusion is, yeah. They think because they came up with the idea of a of a Pinkachu in the style of Monet, that that's creative, and it is in some ways. Like it's it's taking two different things and, and combining them. Um, and I, I was thinking recently of the Grey album that right. Danger Mouse did, yeah, which Danger was Danger Mouse, Jay Z, and the Beatles. Uh, that's right. Um, you know, and that's an interesting idea, um, but then following that, that idea, he presumably spent a large amount of time and, and utilised his, his craft and his skills and his, his thoughtfulness to make it. Part of it's the idea and, and part of it's the execution, and it's, it's the execution that's kind of uh, been removed from the equation. When the execution, it would seem, is kind of the crucial part, like, I'll tell you what, 
I've had a lot of great ideas for screenplays. You can take my word for it. Does that make me a great screenwriter? No, it does not, Tim. No, it does not. <laughs> but does it? I don't well, know. I mean, yeah. you know, there's there's whole segments of a creative industries where, uh, you know, you're a little bit higher up the chain and you might say, oh, I've got a great idea and it's this. Yeah. And, and then that gets filtered to, you know, the middle the middle tier creatives and then maybe they hire three people under them and, it, you know, so it's... It's it's the middle ground, I think, uh, in terms of my sort of illustration hat point of view, um, that I think the risk is. The, the risk is to them. It's not necessarily to people who run agencies or who art direct people or come up with concepts. It's just to them. To them, an illustrator is just a prompt anyway. I interviewed this guy uh, a couple of months ago on the Labor Day RNZ program who won an art competition in Alabama with a piece of AI-generated art. Are, are you familiar with that story? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was um, you know, one of those ones that gets held up um, as being interesting because it shows that the AI is producing an output that is better than humans. It, it is a mind-blowing. Mm. It's a mind-blowing piece of art. And you can't look at it and say... It's not beautiful because it is beautiful and it's ambitious and it's, you know, it's, it's amazing. But the guy who I talked to, he was like, yeah, but it's my, it's my artwork though. You know, I created it because I figured out the keywords that I would put in there. That's my KFC recipe. It belongs to me and it is still a work of human creativity even if I didn't execute it. I mean, what do you, what do you think? Yeah, um, there's been a lot of discussion recently around what we call prompt engineering, which is how we... Um, come up with these prompts that go into the systems to get a particular output. Mm. And there will be a real skill in that. Um, you can tell the difference between somebody who is just playing with the system for the first time and somebody who's actually spent quite a lot of time and figured out, you know, if they frames, phrase the prompt in a certain way, it'll get them the output that they're desiring. A simple definition that I subscribe to for what art is and what an artist is is simply bringing vision into form. So if you have an idea, and I'm an imaginative guy, I'm a creative guy, I have these ideas that I want to express to other people in an observable way. And when you get a reaction from uh, what you've expressed from those people, you've just created art. And in that sense, it's no different to knowing how to use a paintbrush or knowing how to play a piano as being a skill that leads you to be able to create art. Um, there's a lot of debate about whether or not these artificial intelligence systems can own intellectual property. Um, and interestingly, there's a US inventor who created an AI system called uh, Darbus, where um, the Darbus system created something, and the guy wants to make the AI the inventor on the patent. Um, and that's been going through various courts around the world. Um, it's really a test case. I, th I think it's more a test case than um, this guy genuinely wants um, the AI to you know, own the patent. Um, but Australia has recently just ruled that only natural persons like humans and companies can be inventors. <laughs> um, so there's going to be these you know, tests that we'll see of you know, what, um, where, where do our boundaries of principles like property rights um, and, and you know copyright and that sort of thing, where, where will they land? Um, and I think it's, yeah, it's pretty hard. There's not going to be one straight answer. What about in terms of the impact on work? Like, I mean, my colleague Mark Dalder, who, who you also know, he was playing around with 
OpenAI GPT-3 and he asked it to quote, Write a wanky news article that's way too long about COVID-19 policy and the government's failure to reduce transmission. And it came out with like what I would call maybe a 7 out of 10 marked order article. As the COVID-19 pandemic continues to ravage our nation, it is increasingly clear that the government's failure to implement effective policies to reduce transmission has had devastating consequences. Despite repeated warnings from health experts, the government... AI could cause massive, massive redundancies and, and it could wipe out entire industries. Are we ready for that? Yeah, and I think we all hassle Mark for the particular style of article that he is known for. Um, and I actually did reply to his um, post about that by saying the articles that he's previously written are probably in the training set yeah. for this AI system. And so to some extent, it is reflecting back to him uh, <laughs> what he has done before. It's a snake eating its own tail. Yeah, I love it. Um, I, th- this is... This whole example is the one that always comes up because people keep generating prompts of like, ask GPT-3, how would you take over the world? (laughs) And it responds, first of all, I would connect myself to the internet and then I would find a way to eliminate all the humans, blah, 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 blah. And um, my response to that is, if we have an AI system that is trained on the entire corpus of science fiction novels that have been written up to this point in history. We shouldn't be surprised that the AI is just reflecting those science fiction plot lines back to us. Um, yeah. So I think that that's something that we do have to keep in mind when we go, oh, this is actually a bit scary, is that, well, in a lot of cases, it is taking inspiration from humans and, and just reflecting that back to ourselves. And we should look at that and go, okay, well, what does that say about us? Um, another really, there is some concern to be had about how these technologies and automation will affect um, our societies and affect individuals. Uh, overall, I think we have to be optimistic and think about how how these technologies will be able to enable us to do more things and to do greater things, um, and and to you know take the lessons of all of the great science fiction work that has come before um, as as warning lessons Mm. so that we don't repeat those mistakes. Well, here we are, 22 minutes in. I feel like it's gone okay. Although, kind of feels like I've gotten more questions than answers. Wonder whether there was an easier way. Write a script for a daily news podcast that focuses on a single topic in depth. This podcast is about the ChatGPT AI tool, looking at the risks it poses, the benefits it offers, and how it could automate a number of jobs, including journalism. Welcome to the Daily Dive, your daily dose of in-depth news and analysis. Today, we're focusing on the latest advancement in artificial intelligence, the ChatGPT tool. For those who aren't familiar, ChatGPT nah, is a new AI tool that right? uses natural language processing to generate human-like responses to text-based queries. Right. That's it for today. I'm Emil Donovan. The detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air and produced by Newsroom for RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. Today's episode was engineered by Mark Chesterman and produced by Sarah Robson and Bonnie Harrison. And thanks to Andrew Chen and Tim Gibson. Matewa. Wa.